we never ever expected to find a smoking gun in the archives because why on earth would an illegal establishment <laughs> leave a paper trail uh, behind? But in fact, the Detroit Historical Col um, Museum collections have business cards from over 200 speakeasies. That's Dr. Krista Ryzewski on the Tales from the Ruther Library podcast. Dr. Ryzewski explains how historical archaeology digs at famous Detroit locales, including the Little Harry Speakeasy, the Bluebird Inn, and the Grand Ballroom, have clarified how underrepresented communities of Detroit experienced and responded to the Great Migration, changing economic forces, and a shifting political and social landscape in the 20th century. Dr. Ryzewski is an associate professor and chair of the Anthropology Department at Wayne State University and author of Detroit Remains, Archaeology and Community Histories of Six Legendary Places. You can find the Tales from the Ruther Library podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Here are hosts Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English. Hello and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library podcast coming to you from the Walter P. Ruther Library on the campus of Wayne State University in the hippest city on earth, Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner, your host, along with the partner in crime, Troy Eller English. Hi, Troy. How are you doing? I'm great, Dan. How are you? It's a lovely spring day in Detroit, isn't it? It is beautiful. It is. We haven't had this in a long time. Um, You know what I love about this podcast, Troy? Everything, I hope. Well, yeah, that's 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 <laughs> true. But it's it's not only do I talk to cool people and read some great books, but I learned so much more about Detroit that is literally in my back backyard, just waiting to be discovered. And in this podcast, we talk with Dr. Krista Rzuski, Associate Professor and Chair of the Department of Anthropology at Wayne State University. Dr. Rzuski received her PhD from Brown University and was a postdoctoral fellow there as well. And she has written a book called. Detroit Remains, Archaeology and Community Histories of Six Legendary Places. This book has six case studies in Detroit, from a speakeasy to the Grandy Ballroom. And if any of you baby boomers from Detroit know, the Grandy was the ballroom for the Who, Iggy Pop, Janis Joplin, and so many other greats from the 60s and early 70s. This is the first historical archaeology book that focuses on Detroit and the Great Migration Era. Detroit Remains traces the contours of the city's underrepresented communities and the relationships to capitalism and social justice through digs, oral histories, and archival research. Now, what I really love about her work is that it's contemporary, and she points out that a lot of our recent history is being bulldozed and lost on any archaeological and archival viewpoint. We can't rely solely on newspaper accounts or eyewitnesses, but deeper understanding that is derived from the primary documents and the artifacts that we find from, from digs. When you read this book, it will give you the ideas and insight of why we really need to first take time to uncover the past before we forge ahead for future construction builds in our cities, towns, and suburbs. So enjoy this really, really enlightening podcast and expand your idea of what exactly archaeology can do for your community. And when you're done, please order Detroit Remains from your local bookstore. <laughs>
Uh, Krista, thank you so much for joining us on the Ruth Tales from the Ruther. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, this is um, I, when I discovered your book, I was so excited to start reading it because it's something out of my my little world. But um, I always ask our authors who are on our podcast, what were some of your objectives to uh, write uh, Detroit Remains? Yeah, so Detroit Remains is uh, a book about how archaeology um, intersects with community histories and can inform um, community histories from a place-based and material perspective. Um, it really is the first book about uh, Detroit archaeology to be published. So I felt like I had an um, extra opportunity and also a special responsibility to convey the story of Detroit in a way that connected with our heritage and uh, met the many different communities who make up the city. So my overarching objective, and I think you can kind of get this from the title, Detroit Remains, is that um, I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about that myth, that persistent myth that Detroit lies in ruins. And mm -hmm. so instead I wanted to focus on what remains of the city's past in the present. So physical remains, but also um, other strands of information from archives and oral histories as well, and bringing those all together to think about how these different strands of remains might fit into um, how we think about the city and what the city's future vision of itself might be and how we can carry our heritage into the future. Um, and, and when you start to read through the introduction of the book, you'll see that I've, I've spelled out four other very specific objectives um, for, for the readers. And I'll just kind of um, in, expand on those very briefly here and go and read more yeah. about it. Um, the first specific objective is to really demonstrate to the readers who I intend to be scholars, but also kind of a general public audience to demonstrate how archeology span can be applied to assembling place-based community histories. Um, an archeological approach to community history and to history in general is something that takes into account a much longer time span than just a moment or a couple of years. We're usually talking about um, several decades or even longer. And so an archeological approach lends itself to talking about processes um, and also understanding singular events or episodes within the context of those processes. And um, that archeological approach also operates first and foremost from a material standpoint. So we focus on the material remains of the human past. Uh, and a, a lot of times those remains aren't totally intact or still visible above ground. So anyway, all this is to say that um, this, this archeological approach and demonstrating how it can be applied to place-based community histories um, uh, are tangible mm -hmm. histories, this tangible um, process. So that's the first objective. And the other three are, are much uh, shorter and more concise. The second is to um, demonstrate how we use archeological findings to highlight relationships and accomplishments and places and things associated with Detroit's underrepresented communities. So in the six different sites that I focus on in the book, we're talking about everyone um, from the late 19th century up to the present um, who contributed to making the city what it is today, from Jewish entrepreneurs to counterculture rock musicians to African-American small business owners in the great migration era and so on. Um, and the third objective is to uh, present archaeological scholarship as 
community involved and collaborative. Archaeology is always a team effort. When you see pictures of excavations in the media, you always see lots of people working together, but you're usually looking at the, the excavation crew. Um, but the way we do archaeology in Detroit is that it, it's always overlapping with community interest as well and community partners. So this book is a product of eight years worth of those partnerships. Um, so it was important for me to position archaeology as a collaborative and community serving and a community oriented practice. And then the fourth specific objective is, you know, a practical purpose, which is that this being the first book um, focused on archaeology and archaeological heritage in Detroit, uh, I wanted it to be a useful resource for other scholars and educators and, and preservation advocates. And and that's what drew me into the book when I started reading it is like how focused you were on community and including the students, something I never really knew about archaeological digs, because, yeah, you're right. We usually see the pictures of everybody dirty, messing around with stuff, with their spatulas and everything like that. So it and it tied in with what, what Detroit's really all about. You know, it's yeah. it's the community base. It's the um, working with uh, Wayne State community, working with Detroit itself. So, I mean. It really spoke to me there, and that was yeah. great. I, I think Detroiters on the whole, I don't want to overgeneralize here, and archaeologists on the whole, are they have a lot in common when it comes to um, to all of us being people who love to roll up their sleeves, and we're kind of bootstrappers, and we like to, to jump in and um, do things our, on our own and make mm -hmm. a way for ourselves. And um, so, so it was a, a we were we were good bedfellows. <laughs> absolutely sorry let's talk about one of your case studies yeah. um you have a you, you have a lot so i had to pick the one that's the sexiest one that we all heard about <laughs> in the press uh here locally and that was about little harry speakeasy so for our listeners explain this case study and what was so unique what was the unique draw from the public toward it yeah so let me tell you about uh the little harry speakeasy in in general um you know detroit has a fixation with the Prohibition era Purple Gang. The Purple Gang was a ragtag group of um, mostly um, Russian Jewish, um, I guess for lack of a better word, mobsters or criminals who mm. uh, were really in charge of the bootlegging and smuggling industry that ferried alcohol from Canada uh, into Detroit and then redistributed it throughout the the Midwest um, during the Prohibition era, um, they were a violent criminal organization, um, and especially during the 1920s. They were a great source of shame for the Jewish community in Detroit at the time. Uh, and that was a time when the Jewish community in Detroit was also um, really excluded from a lot of opportunities when it came to office holding and being part of different social groups and so on. Um, so over the years, though, a century later, uh, we kind of think of the Purple Gang with um, kind of rose-colored glasses. They're almost romanticized, and that that um, that that distance of time has introduced a bit of a, a buffer that that makes it kind of safe to to focus and and be enamored by the the Purple Gang. It allows a kind of fascination. So anyway, um, what the the Little Harry Speakeasy project was the very first community-based project I did when I came to Wayne State. I came to Wayne State in uh, 2011, and this project uh, uh, started in 2012, and it was initiated by um, a local preservationist, Marian Christensen, who at the time was conducting the tours for 
Preservation Detroit, which is an important um, actor in this entire mm -hmm. book. And she was in conversation with the owner of a sports bar that's down on Third Street near Third and Fort, Fort Street downtown, um, Tommy Burrell. And the, the bar is still there. It's called Tommy's Detroit Bar and Grill. You should all go check it out. Check it out. Uh, Tommy was uh, telling her how there used to be a speakeasy in the basement of, of his bar. And there was an underground tunnel. And there had been a very old patron who was in his 80s who used to come in and tell stories about how he uh, went and attended the speakeasy with his father when he was a young boy. So we had all of these details from this a kind of telephone game of oral histories that passed through. And so they invited me to come in and take a look at it. And I have to say, at first, I was kind of skeptical because from the moment I arrived to Detroit and people found out I, I did kind of more recent archaeology, I, I would probably receive an email or a phone call a week from somebody <laughs> telling me they had a prohibition era speakeasy or yeah. still house or tunnel or whatnot in their backyard. So uh, but uh, Marion had done quite a bit of legwork in historical research, and it seemed like this was a really uh, viable place. So anyway, um, long story short, we devised a series of research questions uh, designed to first verify if there was um, some sort of underground room uh, below Tommy's Bar and Grill that had a tunnel access, and then to uh, get more information about that from archival sources or oral. And then our kind of secondary objective was to figure out whether or not if it was indeed a speakeasy, was it affiliated with the Purple Gang? Uh, so we uh, uh, gathered together a team of archaeologists from Wayne State, mostly students at the time, undergrads and grads, and um, other volunteers from local universities and, and some preservationists. And we created uh, kind of two task forces. Um, one focused on surveying the architectural remains of the basement and looking for clues about whether there was a, a hidden room down there at some point. And the other focused on uh, conducting archival research. Um, and we never ever expected to find a smoking gun in the archives because why on earth would an illegal <laughs> establishment leave a paper trail uh, behind? But in fact, the Detroit Historical um, Museum collections have business cards from over 200 speakeasies wow. uh, or access cards from over 200 speakeasies in their collection. And one of them was for the Little Harry Speakeasy. And we know it was at this particular location because there was actually an address on the card. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Um, and so we learned the name of it. And that was um, really important because the two owners of the uh, two of the owners of the building during the 1920s and 1930s during Prohibition had the first name Harry, Harry Weitzman and Harry uh, Biancini. Mm -hmm. And um, through the course of our research, uh, we were able to verify that there was there was a hidden underground room. The tunnel's still there. We excavated the tunnel at the very lowest level. We found all sorts of um, uh, bottles and tools and other objects that we could date to the 1920s or earlier. So it synced up with the time period of the occupation. There were still some uh, um, wall panel fragments, uh, a different electrical system, uh, and, and some other remains in that, that one basement room that kind of matched up with the oral history in some ways and uh, certainly verified that there was a one-room underground speakeasy. It was probably just used for entertaining and that there was this business card that um, patrons would show at the tunnel entrance to the guard 
and it would gain them access. Um, so, you know, Detroiters were um, probably the hardest decision they had to make during prohibition was, was not, you know, how to get their hands on alcohol, but which speakeasy to choose. <laughs> they were all over the place. It was the worst kept secret in the city. But anyway, all of this generated a lot of attention, a lot of um, interest from the national media and from the Jewish community and from the business owner himself and the collaborative process of working with Preservation Detroit and uh, Tom Burrell was really great. Um, and in the aftermath, uh, it was a great boon to local business and there were a lot of tour groups coming through. They still curate the space for visitors. Um, and, and it was a way to shed light on Detroit's kind of criminal past, but also think about small business owners back then as entrepreneurs and kind of get a better sense of what the social scene was like. Uh, there's still a little bit of a kind of ironic tinge to this whole fascination with the Purple Gang and the, the speakeasy. And that's um, that, you know, the image we try to refute of Detroit today, you know, is one where we're the murder capital of the world and we're a place beset by uh, crime and gambling and extortion and corruption. Um, everything we resist in the stereotypes of criminal Detroit today is what people are fascinated mm -hmm. by when it comes to stories of the Purple Gang. Um, and just to kind of tie up that that strand, um, it turns out that Harry Weitzman, the owner of the Little Harry Speakeasy, he was not a member of the Purple Gang, um, uh, an official member. He, he doesn't have an arrest record or anything like that, um, but he was definitely an accessory and a beneficiary of, of their operations. He was definitely uh, profiting from his connections with them. He grew up on the Lower East Side. I spoke to some of his family members who came out of the woodwork during this process. I followed his connections throughout the city, but he got really rich during prohibition and he used that money to buy, to, to finance the construction of the Grandy Ballroom, which is another case study. Oh. And his children's initials are still um, uh, kind of, they're part of the, the window frame design of the grandy so there you go oh, that that's that's so cool that is like amazing how that all connects together for the small business person within detroit that's really cool yeah um each time people find out i work at the ruther and when we get over the fact that it's not all labor but urban history they always ask so what do you have on the purple gang what do you have on the purple gang? Hey, I found some bottles in my backyard. You think this is the purple gangs? Yeah, I always get that too. But great segue, because my next question is about the music scene of Detroit. We always hear about Motown, um, Iggy Pop, and all of that, MC5. But you look at two musical spaces within Detroit that are very appealing. One is the Bluebird Inn the iconic jazz club. And yes, we had the stage here at the Ruther library and we had a concert on that, which was wonderful. So I stood on the stage for a little bit, which was yeah. quite an honor. Um, but also you talk about the Grandy, Detroit's equivalent to the Fillmore um, in the late sixties, early seventies. So can you talk about the similarities and differences within these case studies? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was a great honor to be able to uh, bring archaeology to bear on the stories of the Bluebird and the Grandy. These are such special places for uh, generations of, of Detroiters. They're so special that they're almost like sacred spaces. Yeah. They, they've yeah. become places of, especially the Grandy, places of pilgrimage. People are trying to get back in there and there's been commemorative concerts and, and films and so on. Um, so, you know, that 
one of the questions is what more can archaeology bring to the story that we don't already know about these places? Um, and so I'll come back to that in a minute. But to get at your question, um, the similarities, the biggest similarity between the Bluebird and the Grandy is that these places were incubators for creative expression. You know, when we think of Motown and that sort of angle of music heritage in Detroit, that was a really choreographed, um, in the box, mm -hmm. commercial assembly line enterprise. Yeah, later on there, there became a little bit more wiggle room um, in response to you know different different socio-political circumstances. But from the get-go, the the Bluebird and the Grandy as music spaces were um, pushing the boundaries and were really tying together and bringing together. Um, previous iterations of, of jazz and electronic, electric music and creating something new. So um, the, for, for those of you that aren't familiar with these two places, the Bluebird Inn um, is legendary for being um, the place that introduced, or one of the places that introduced um, progressive or bebop jazz to Detroit in the late 1940s and, and early 1950s. It was really the nerve center of Detroit's jazz scene. It was located on, or is still located on Tyerman Avenue in the um, city's old west side. It was right on the dividing line between the white half, the northern half of the west side, and the black half to the south. Um, it was a very segregated neighborhood into the 60s. Um, and some of the all-time great jazz artists performed there on that tiny little stage. Uh, Miles Davis, John Coltrane, Cannonball Adderley, and many more. Um, but what people don't really appreciate about the Bluebird of that period is that it was also a, an important community gathering place. They served food there. You know, it was a place for people to come and relax after work and watch TV at a time when TV was a new phenomenon, listen to the jukebox. Um, they also used it as a, a bank. They cashed their checks there as well. Um, uh, the Grandy, uh, as an as a incubator, was... Um, the epicenter of Detroit's counterculture music scene. And it, when it was under the management of um, the late uncle Russ Gibb from 1966 to 1972, um, he, he ushered in uh, rock music of all, all types. And it also was contiguously a place of really heightened political activism um, through the Fifth Estate newspaper, uh, Trans Loves Energy Collective, the White Panther Party. Um, in comparison to the Bluebird, it was more of a more of an overt space of rebellion and counterculture. Uh, but I also think, you know, we're talking about a couple decades later here. That was also a sign of the times during the anti-war right. movement, civil rights movement. Um, but just like the Bluebird, the Grandy was a welcoming space for all. It was very well respected in the community. The Grandy wasn't even touched during the 1967 uprising, uh, where whereas all the buildings around it on Grand River were um, damaged. Um, another really significant similarity is that both the Bluebird and the Grandy are sites of, um, are part of grassroots preservation movements. And the reason why they survive is due to the fact that a couple local folks took initiative to bring together supporters for the preservation movement. So with the Grandy, um, uh, Leo Early really spearheaded that effort in partnership with the building's owner, um, the uh, 
Chapel Hill Missionary Baptist Church. And he started the Friends of the Grandy Group and they've been tremendously active since the early 2000s. Um, they keep the Grandy in conversation. And then on the part of the Bluebird, um, credit is due to um, the founder and former executive director Carlton Golds of the Detroit Sound Conservancy for really initiating the preservation effort there. Uh, and both of those uh, organizations and individuals were partners on these projects. And these two sites were at risk of demolition by neglect uh, before the preservation efforts began. Now the Grandy is on the National Register of Historic Places and the Bluebird is um, under Michelle McKinney's leadership is receiving grants for restoration. They've secured a roof for the building and so on. Um, and just to highlight a couple key differences, the main differences are archeological actually, um, are archeological findings. During our survey of the Bluebird, um, the archeology span team recovered a document cache of over 2000 documents that were neatly bundled by the day of the week and stuffed into the ceiling <laughs> above the entryway vestibule. Um, and they dated from 1948 through 1949. They had, there were payroll ledgers, che checks that were cashed, receipts, you name it. Um, one of the payroll ledgers details the exact day when the Bluebirds owners, the, the Du Bois family hired the first Bebop Act, Phil, wow. the Phil Hill combo to play there. I mean, and that, that just really um, added a new level of detail to the narrative of the Bluebird. And the document cache also really highlights the ways in which the, the, the Du Bois and then the Eddins family, who were both um, African-American families, how black business owners in the mid-century had networks throughout the city, but especially in Paradise Valley. And mm -hmm. all of the remains of Paradise Valley um, no longer exist, the physical remains. They were, they were destroyed during the construction of the, the, um, the Chrysler Freeway. And so in some ways, the document cache there is our best archeological assemblage of Paradise Valley as well. So it's really significant for black history, black archeology. span um, But at the Grandy, most of what we recovered during our archeological span survey were architectural elements, um, bits of the building and uh, fragments of murals that were on the wall, things that spoke directly to the concert going experience there. Um, and synced up in some ways with the living memories of the baby boomers who attended concerts there. We don't have any living memories anymore of the people who attended the Bluebird as adults during the late 40s, early 50s. And so um, the archeological finds kind of directed the type of stories we could tell. So we tell a story of black business owners at the Bluebird, whereas we can tell stories more about the musical experience, the grandy experience at the, the grandy. Um, and finally, both stories highlight the debates that surround um, whether or not we should be preserving places that were associated with music. Yeah. Um, music and the, the you know, act of consuming it at a concert is, is an ephemeral experience. So why should we um, be focusing on the permanency of the places associated with music making and music consuming? And I don't think we have to try to to push that argument too far on Detroiters. We wanna preserve this history. We wanna tell these stories. It is a special connection you have when you can touch a brick from the Grandy Ballroom, when you stand on the stage of the Bluebird. And I think we want to be able to push um, 
those connections and foreground them so other people can experience them too. So, I mean, you stood on the stage of the Bluebird. You probably had a special, special feeling, a sensory experience at that moment, which, you know, is something you just can't put into words. Right. No, you're right. You know, you, you get that feeling. It's like Miles stood here and now I'm standing here. And it's, it's an amazing feeling. Music talks to everybody and we should preserve and talk about musical past in this kind of way. I mean, it, when I mentioned it to my wife's aunt, we were, I was reading your book about the Grandy, and she was just like, oh, my brother, every weekend, and the fly, and she just kept going on, and it's like, <laughs> it touches something on people, you know? Yeah. Um, but you you talk, you mentioned two community groups that really helped for help develop this, and your entire book highlights how you use students and you use the community that really resonates with not only the archives here, because we do the same thing. We use students, we use the community to gather the collections and talk about our history. And I know this is going to be tough on you, but <laughs> could you mention just a few that really highlight the using of syncing together the students and the community and, and how this all long-term effects happen with, with your projects? Yeah, this is a tough question. I so. know. <laughs> well, you could put it in as a all your cases if you want to, you know. Yeah, I mean, sure, all of them are, are success stories when it comes, all of the case studies are success stories when it comes to productive relations between um, community stakeholders and archaeologists and, and Wayne State students. Um, but the way in which I present the six case studies is chronological. So I think you can get a sense that they, the relationships mm -hmm. and the, pro not the relationships, but the process uh, became smoother over time. And it just so happened that the most um, politically fraught and contentious project that uh, we dealt with and that is in this book is the last one. So the most recent one, which was the destruction uh, of the log cabin on Halleck Street um, on Detroit's uh, kind of near Northwest side, right on the Hamtramck border. And um, this is a, a site where uh, a 19th century log cabin was discovered encased by a 20th century house when that 20th century house had been uh, earmarked for demolition. It was owned by the Detroit Land Bank and a state inspector went in there to make sure there wasn't any asbestos before the demolition. Uh, and he had heard about archeology, span um, our archeological work <laughs> okay. in the news from these earlier projects. And so he contacted me, it was kind of like, vigilante archaeology, vigilante preservation. And so we, we went in there and sure enough, it was certainly the remains of an undocumented log cabin. So anyway, um, to answer your question, we were able to mobilize the archaeologists, um, political leaders in Hamtramck, museum, uh, local museum and historical groups, statewide preservation groups, almost immediately because of the process and also reputation community archaeology had established for itself in the preceding seven, eight years. So I would say that was the, the best example that proves that community archaeology builds longstanding relationships and that, that um, these partnerships can be mobilized sort of in a kind of activist oriented way. We really wanted to preserve that log cabin and turn it into an interpretive educational center in Hamtramck, and we had the resources to in place to do that, um, and we're prepared to gather more resources, but um, there was not a happy ending. Mm -hmm. The system got the best of us, and 
um, it was demolished under uh, suspicious circumstances, but um, we made we made the most of it, and we still we still generated quite a bit of information and and uh, raised heightened awareness about the importance of archaeology preservation and community heritage in in the city. No, absolutely, and that's that's a, a fine way to look at what happened. You were able to tell the story and it's preserved that way instead of the physical. At least you can talk about that. So it adds to the story of Detroit, you know, because so many people think law cabin in Detroit, impossible. You know, I mean, I moved, when I moved here, I was like, this is an old city. I came from out uh, DC area where everything is still yeah. intact, you can say. And so, but I'm so glad you were able to do that quickly. So some of your criticisms that in your projects, though, you mentioned is, especially with the Bluebird, um, the sites are too young. What does that mean? I didn't, I couldn't grasp that, you know? That actually makes me really happy that you couldn't grasp that because um, most of, of the criticisms that I've, I've encountered about the, the nature of the sites in this book, and they're all, you know, 20th century sites for the most part, the Ransom Gillis house goes back a little bit further from the 1880s onwards. But, um, you know, archaeology is often thought of as the business of ancient history and in, in exotic, far-off places. So, if if um, if we're receiving any kind of scrutiny or pushback from the general public, I get that because that's what they're used to seeing in the media. But in fact, most of the criticisms I've received are from other archaeologists who mm -hmm. don't quite understand what the added value of archaeology is to telling the stories of these places and. Um, I, when I've raised this to other colleagues, um, yourself included now, but also the partners uh, at the Detroit Sound Conservancy or the Grandy Ballroom, you know, they, they think this is ridiculous. They think that archaeology has added value and many different layers of detail and meaning and new voices to the stories of these places because we've kind of reactivated the, the history and the spaces through the material remains that we've collected. We're able to tell different stories from different points of view. We're not telling a new story of these places. We're telling an additional story of these places from a very different perspective. Um, kind of practically speaking though, um, I guess there's a little bit of conservatism surrounding um, age and heritage and history as well. And that, that trickles down from the way in which our federal preservation, historic preservation system is structured. Um, to be considered eligible for listing on um, the National Register of Historic Places, a property has to be at least 50 years old. There are some excep exceptions that can be made, but by and large, the 50-year um, birthday or anniversary is, is the, the chronological marker of, of old for a building. But for an archaeological site, um, the clock goes back even further and the, the convention, although it's not kind of uh, codified in law or policy, is that anything after 1890 is not really the stuff of priority archaeological concern. And that's, in fact, how um, the cultural resource management industry, the, the, the contract archaeology industry that is required by law, um, to undertake investigations before federally funded projects are, are begun in Detroit. And this is a very um, productive archeological uh, profession and there's quite a lot of CRM activity in the city. Um, 
they don't really focus on remains that post-date 1890. So anytime there's been an archeological recovery in Detroit at a place like the Renaissance Center or um, uh, places in Brush Park or many, many of the other hundreds of sites in Detroit, they, they don't tend to record as carefully remains that post-date 1890. So you know what that means. That means the great migration era, the automotive age, um, everything else that happened in the 20th century, it has not been the concern of archeologists. So I think some of this, this criticism is coming uh, from the, the fact that um, this, this is a new perspective on archeology span uh, with respect to Detroit. And you know what, I'm okay with that because it, it makes people pay attention and, and I'm very happy to debate and discuss it. Excellent, because it does revitalize the history itself. It reawakens what we've talked, what we've known about you know, and that's that's what I appreciate what you're doing. I mean, yeah. it needs to be. And here at the Ruther, we're kind of dealing not with old documents. We do have a lot of old documents, obviously, but we're dealing with the current stuff as well. And yeah. it's we have to preserve that and look at it as a piece of history that no, it hasn't percolated, as I like to say. History percolates a little bit. Um, we're definitely looking at the modern record. Yeah, and, and when you're dealing with living memory, people have connections to these places. So they say, well, if I went to the Grandy Ballroom, you know, I was there, you weren't there, you weren't even born yet. You know, what, what, what business do you have telling this story? And um, every archeologist will tell you there's a difference between what people say they do and what they actually did or <laughs> between what went on at a place and uh, what they remember went on at a place and what actually happened there. Uh, and the Grandy is a great example of that. The that many of the concert goers are still alive. They're baby boomers now. Um, and their memories are, are, are not complete. They might be a little fuzzy and it's not because they're aging. I don't want to discriminate along those no, lines. No, I think so. It was going on in the Grandy at the time. Yeah, That's but what's fuzzy. happening at the Grandy? You know, they weren't there to um, uh, conduct participant observation. You know, they, they <laughs> are participants in the experience. So, um, they, and then the same can be said for uh, other places like Gordon Park, the, the flashpoint for the 1967 uprising, it's where the economy printing um, building once stood. Uh, that park kind of just sat there uh, for the best part of 50 years with no historical marker, no nothing to commemorate the importance of, of the event that began there. And um, people forget over time the significance of these places if we're not calling attention to them. And you know the story of the monument, Jack Ward's monument in Gordon Park, and the ways in which that monument is re-envisioned and and renamed over time. I mean, it says it all about why we have to apply this long-term perspective to understanding places, and why archaeology can open up conversations about the recent past in in meaningful ways. So um, that's my soapbox, and I'm sticking. <laughs> It's a nice book, box to be on. I, I appreciate that a lot because, because also you you bring in with your book also something that's very uh, current with with uh, political systems going on right now and talk. And but your phrase is great: contours of capitalism. I love that turn of the phrase because in the day that we even my son tells me that capitalism is always wrong, is always evil, and it is all based on inequality. But you bring out how capitalism is beneath the surface. Nice turn of a phrase again. I like that. Um, and pinpointing the inequality is difficult to see. Can you elaborate on this idea? Yeah, I will try. <laughs> um, 
This is one of those ideas that comes, comes across better in writing and reading than speaking, I think. But um, first, to give credit where credit's due, I, I, I modified I, the phase contours of capitalism from um, another historical archaeologist uh, called Anna Agby Davis. And um, her work focuses on the contours of community. So mm. there's, a, there's a kind of counterbalance to this. Uh, but when, I, when I'm talking about the contours of capitalism, I'm, I'm thinking about and calling attention to the fact that there's, I think there's a lot more to learn when it comes to understanding how capitalism plays out on the ground in the lives of everyday people who are just trying to make a living and maybe get ahead, but above all else, um, just secure a comfortable um, lifestyle and maybe even a future for their, their loved ones and their, their surrounding community. Everyone who we meet in the book is, is bootstrapping in, in one way or another. We're not talking about the, the who's who of Detroit, the elites. We're talking about everyday hardworking people um, who for the most part were operating within the cities structure of industrial capitalism. You know, we had gangsters and political re rebels and all that, but um, even in, in order for the purple gang smuggling activities to succeed, they had to operate within the capitalist system of, of banking and distribution networks. And even for the, uh, the, the anarchist um, uh, White Panther Party and communes at the uh, or, or sorry, collectives at the Grandy Ballroom for their their uh, efforts to be sustained. They had to make money somehow. So anyway, all this is to say that I think archaeology is is the perfect tool to illuminate the material manifestations of inequality. To look at what people uh, to use the artifacts we recover and the documents we locate to to look at um, and identify disparities uh, between you know, income between occupations, um, to look at uh, what people were choosing to consume and spend their money on and how that reflects their desire to reinforce certain aspects of their identity or to belong, to fit in with other groups. Um, some of the examples we, we located through the course of our research in this book shows how people are even willing to go so far as to uh, kind of shape shift and change mm -hmm. their identities in ways that um, really exploit the capitalist system. So there's some archaeology can provide a, some insight into how people not only, you know, I think just to back up for a second, we either tend to treat capitalism as this kind of top down oppressive structure, or we look at it. And when I'm talking about we, I'm talking about archaeologists, anthropologists, historians, we look at it as people resisting the capitalist structure. But I think there's a whole lot of gray area in between that comes to the fore in these case studies. And that's what I'm talking about when I talk about kind of shape-shifting identities. Uh, one of the one of my favorite shapeshifters that uh, we locate in a very short newspaper column um, it, in the research for the log cabin chapter is a man called um, Douglas Ford. And he was um, an African-American man who came up to Detroit as part of the Great Migration in the 1920s. And he was a homeowner. He, he earned enough money to buy a house, a, a single family house 
in um, the, the north end of Detroit, with, around the area of, the, of Halleck Street, actually on Halleck Street. Um, and he did that because he, was a, he had his own delivery business. And he uh, called his delivery business D, his first initial Ford. And um, people thought that he was a driver for the Ford Automotive Company, or he had some connection to them. Because, and so he had a huge base of, of white clientele in and around Detroit. And he was so profitable, he delivered um, uh, coal for uh, coal-fired stoves and, and other, other fuel products. Uh, he, he was so profitable that he didn't suffer, his business didn't suffer at all during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, he, he owned one of these small, uh, kind of architecturally insignificant, as my uh, historic preservation colleagues would call it, houses on, on Detroit's North End. And, um, but he had this amazing history that operated both within and beyond the confines of, of capitalism. So that's just one example. There are so many examples. And I think if we're really going to understand capitalism as a social phenomenon, more than just an economic structure, we really do need to locate these stories on the everyday level of resolution and understand how they um, operated within the system. Absolutely. And that's part of what we are all doing as historians, archivists, archaeologists, you know, everything. We're looking at that bottom up and yeah. bringing that forefront to the, being the stories that people can identify with. All right. Final question we always love to ask all our researchers is, what collections did you use at the Ruther, but also what other archives did you use to help with your own research to get this stuff out? We'd like to expose the archive, basically. Oh, I'm very happy to do that. Um, I consulted several different archives um, around Michigan uh, and across the country. Um, At the Ruther, the virtual Motor City collection was really important to me um, when doing uh, research on streetscapes, looking at the historic photographs, but also locating some of the the images that I wound up using in the book. The book has um, over 80 images. So I, I was fortunate enough to uh, be able to flesh out the stories with some really great illustrations. And the Virtual Motor City Collection um, is, is a trove of uh, wealth of resources. And I know it's not even totally cataloged yet. Right. So I can't wait to see what else is in there. <laughs> um, also at the Ruther, there is a collection that belongs to the, the founding member of our Anthropology Museum at Wayne State, the Gross Cup Museum of Anthropology, and uh, there's about a dozen boxes of papers from his office when when he passed away. They're not not yet um, inventoried or or well-organized, but I I was given permission to sift through those, and I came across some really phenomenal um, primary source notes and notebooks and phone records that I used to weave into the conversations about some of the early archaeology projects in Detroit. Um, at the Gross Cup Museum of Anthropology, we have an archive as well on campus and it's open to the public. And there we have all sorts of um, statewide files of archaeological sites and, and field reports. So I was able to get my hands on some of the, the notes from previous excavations there that I reference in the book. Um, and beyond that, of course, the Burton Historical Collection at the Detroit Public Library, um, the Detroit Historical Collections, uh, the Bentley Library uh, at the University of Michigan. Um, the, the State Historic Preservation Office has an important uh, 
uh, cache of site files for archaeological sites, but also national register files. Mm. And, and there were others as well, but the Library of Congress is, is really key now that so much of their um, resources have been digitized, especially Sanborn maps, which are important for archaeologists to um, use as a resource. And um, I also looked at a ton of newspaper archives. Um, and through Wayne State, we have access to the Detroit Free Press and the Michigan Chronicle, which is the historically black newspaper for Detroit um, and many other resources as well. Cool. I mean, that you did some great research. We always appreciate that in the archival world. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I really feel like what I encountered was just the tip of the iceberg. I, I don't think people outside of Detroit really uh, or outside of Michigan really appreciate the trove of archival documents and materials that there are about um, the development of Detroit as a city, and especially right. during the period when it was expanding so rapidly during the, during the 20th century. And so for those of you who are listening that might be interested in researching more about Detroit, there's plenty for you to do. <laughs> well, yeah, there is lots. Yes. Thank you. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. I do appreciate it. And I had a great conversation with you. Thank you, Dan. This was great. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library and Archives of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers are Dan Galadner and Troy Eller-English. The music was composed by Bart Bilmer. And of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. For more information, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan. She has written a book called Detroit Remains, an archaeologic... Archeolog- <laughs> <laughs>
On this day in labor history, the year was 1998. That was the day GM workers in Flint, Michigan walked off the job. 9,200 workers with UAW locals 659 and 651 had shut down a company which at the time accounted for 1% of the country's economic output. Production at GM plants throughout the U.S., Canada, and Mexico all came to a screeching halt. Many noted that what began as a localized walkout became the most significant strike against GM since 1970. Management had moved dyes out of the metal center and shipped them to operations in Canada. In an act of international solidarity, brothers and sisters in the CAW refused to handle the dyes. The seven-week strike was solid against a Wall Street attack on one of the last closed shops in the country. The strike was also popular with auto workers elsewhere, who confronted assembly line speed-up, mandatory overtime, and the constant fear of plant closures. It inspired GM workers in Indiana, Ohio, and California to also go on strike. Even workers at the Tennessee-based Saturn plant, touted as a model of labor management relations, voted to strike in response to threatened outsourcing. But the strike essentially ended in a standoff. The union had stopped GM from closing plants in Flint and Dayton, Ohio, at least for a while, and GM agreed to invest millions in modernizing the Flint facilities. But weeks after the strike ended, GM bosses avowed more union-busting attacks. They declared a two-pronged strategy. First, they intended to spin off the Delphi Parts Division as an independent operation. Then, GM announced they planned to close existing U.S. plants in favor of new facilities that assembled pre-made parts fabricated at non-union suppliers. The war against the UAW had begun. Like what you hear? Check out more at laborhistoryin2.com. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. Hey, if you're listening to this podcast, that means you love labor history just as much as we do. Please help more folks find the show, like it in your podcast app, pass it along. It's also really helpful if you leave a review. Special thanks this week to Dan Galadner and Troy Eller English, who host the Tales from the Ruther Library podcast. It's available on your favorite podcast app. And thanks, as always, to Labor History and Two, a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Councils, Union City Radio, and the Kalmedovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history, and see you next time.